Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, um, those of you who have your Bibles, you can open with me to um, James chapter 4. Um, it will be on the screen as well, but um, sometimes if you want to take notes, it's handy to have, have your own uh, Bible open. And um, last, last week I started speaking a little bit about um, overcoming temptation. And Rochelle was referring to the fact, well, maybe I should start with this. Um, last week I also just s- said, you know, just imagine, um, just imagine what your life would be like if you could consistently resist temptation. Just imagine what your life would be like if you could consistently say no to the things you're supposed to say no to. So often, the things that disrupt our lives, our work lives, our relationships, our peace of mind, everything is because we fail to say no to the things we ought to say no to. So just imagine, you know, you could consistently say no to the things you're supposed to say no to. Just imagine you can consistently say no to the things you want to say no to. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about, you know, that, 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 uh, that ice cream that comes out of the fridge, you know, late at night when, you, uh, you know, when you're a bit stressed or something. I'm, t- I'm talking about, you know, saying no to getting in the last word, you know, in the argument, you know. I'm, I'm talking about saying no to... Um, shouting at your child when you're frustrated with them. I'm talking about <clears throat> saying no to watching that YouTube video that distracts you from doing your work or for, from you know, focusing on what you're supposed to be focusing on. Um, I'm talking about saying no to that porn that wants to grab your life and um, you know, twist your heart. I'm talking about saying no to that drug that you're tempted to use to make you feel better. Just imagine you could say no to everything you want to say no to and you ought to say no to. Just imagine what your life would be like. I can guarantee you your life would be a lot better. Now, you know, imagine having a society where everyone says no to the things that they ought to say no to. I mean, we'll get much better service delivery. Our traffic would be much better and much more kind. <laughs> you know, people would say no to driving over the red light or speeding. <laughs> people would say no to stealing public money and more money would go to the poor or to fixing roads or to creating jobs, etc., etc., etc. Society would be so much better. <clears throat> so Rochelle was saying that this year we want to focus on intentional growth. And one of the essentials to intentionally growing is to intentionally say yes to the things we ought to say yes to and no to the things we ought to say no to. We will not grow unless we can do that. So I'm just going to look um, this morning at, at, at saying yes and no a little bit, and I'm going to do it at the hand of James chapter 4. So let me just start by reading that. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. This is James 4 from verse 1 to, I'm going to read to, to about verse 10. 
It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions there, and, and you'll see it appears a verse or two later again, um, is, is a, it comes from the Greek word hedonon um, or hedonai. And, and if you listen carefully, you'll hear it sounds very similar to the word hedonism. Right? It's, it's actually the Greek word that we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism is a love of pleasure. It's, it's sort of a, um, a, a, a living for, living a self-indulgent life of self-gratification. That's hedonism. And, and that's the idea behind this, this Greek word. That, because hedonism comes from, from that Greek word. So when you read passions there, it, it actually um, it, it refers to pleasures or, or desire for pleasure. So um, is it not this, that your passions or pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you may, uh, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is uh, to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. And uh, on the screen there, I just added, uh, in my opinion, probably the better translation. There's a bit of uh, the word spirit. I mean, there's, there's no punctuation and capitals and so on in the original Greek. So, so that's why they, they struggle to, to figure out exactly how to translate it. Is the spirit, the, pen, the word pneuma in the Greek, does it refer to the human spirit or to God's spirit? Uh, and, and there are some more complications that I want to get, don't want to get into. But m- m- in my opinion, the better translation is, uh, would be of, of that portion in, in quotation marks, that the Spirit, capital, the Holy Spirit in other words, the Spirit, he caused to dwell in us, longs or yearns jealously. Um, in other words, and the reason I say that is the Spirit that God causes to dwell in us, and he's talking here in, in the context of, of those who belong to him, in other words, those who are Christians, um, is the Holy Spirit. So, um, verse uh, 6 goes on, and he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. And even when your word is, Lord, um, challenging and in a sense it almost feels harsh, Lord, and feels like a rebuke, Lord, like this portion in in James chapter 4, Lord. Your word is precious and it's good for us. It's good to us, Lord, and it's life-giving, and it's correcting, and it's strengthening, and it's encouraging. And Lord, we, we just open up our hearts to receive your word, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that, uh, Lord, even as we read in this portion, Lord, that, that through your grace you'll enable us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you, Lord. 
so that with humble hearts we can receive your word and be changed by your word in Jesus' name. We just consecrate ourselves to you. We consecrate this time to you and we pray, Lord, that you will accomplish in us and ultimately through us what you want to in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I just, I don't want to, there's too much here to, to go into in, you know, extreme depth. So I just want to sort of do a bit of a helicopter flight over this portion of Scripture. And the first thing I want you to see there is that this portion of Scripture mentions all three our greatest enemies. Okay? Did you notice that? In the first portion, it talks about those passions, those hedonistic passions, which are the desires and the passions and the, the pleasure-loving of our flesh. Remember what I said last time, that our flesh just wants to comfort us. It wants, it's always striving towards comfort. It's always striving to make us feel good. But the problem is, even if that is by means of sin, and often, very often, it's by means of sin, um, and, and those are those hedonistic desires and passions and pleasures that, that this text is talking about. And it says that those hedonistic pleasures are at war in us. And we know that. Because none of us just wants one thing. If we listen to our flesh, we usually want a lot of things. And those things are often in con conflict with one another. And not only... Is there within me a war based on the desires, the sinful desires of my flesh? But between us, there's a war because there are different hedonistic desires that work in us. And we, we want them and we're willing to fight for them and we're willing to quarrel for them. So there's this battle that goes on inside of us because of our flesh. And that's the first enemy is the flesh. And, and the flesh is, like I said last time, it's like the Trojan horse. It's, it's the enemy on the inside that opens the gates to the enemies on the outside. And, but this text goes on to mention the other two enemies, which are the enemies on the outside. And the first one that it mentions is the world. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? If you, if you therefore choose to be a friend of the world, you choose to be an enemy of God. And the world, the whole world system, it's, it's not like sin that came into the world and when Adam and Eve fell, that just individuals were corrupted. But our world system, which flows out of how individuals live, have been corrupted as well. Our cultures have been corrupted because culture is the, the sum total of putting people together. And when you put sinful people together, you get sinful cultures. And those sinful cultures reinforce the sinful desires and hedonistic pleasures that we seek after. And it says there, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. In other words, they, they, are, they are, God and the world are contrasting um, allegiances. If you, if you want to have allegiance with God, then you cannot have allegiance with the world and vice versa. And then the third one that is mentioned is the in verse 7 where it says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And, and it mentions the devil. It mentions the, the devil as, 
where the world is of the physical world system that works in on us and tries to get our allegiance, pull our allegiance away to God, from God and to itself. The devil is the spiritual entity who's working on us, trying to work on us. And obviously here yeah, the devil is used, you know, um, metaphorically to represent you know, all these demons as well. The spiritual unseen world working in on us to try and get us to not submit to God, but to submit to it, to submit to the devil, to submit to the evil one. And those are the three enemies that we face. Now, why I mention this, and I just want to give you this overview, is it's really, really important that we see the world the way Scripture reveals it to be. Because the way, um, the, way the world, the way the media, the way you know, people in general see the world and will present the world to us is very different from this. Just think about it for a moment. The, what does the world say about our desires, our passions? Does the world say our passions and our desires are wrong? No, on the contrary, they write. In fact, the world goes so far as to say they sacrosanct. Your passions, your desires tell you who you really are. The heroes in the story are the rebels who follow their desires despite what everyone else says. What does the world tell us about itself? It, it tries to force us into allegiance with itself. Either through, through, through negative pressure, whether it's political correctness or, or um, threats or whatever it is, or through enticement, seduction, trying to pull us in. So it's trying to push us and pull us at the same time deeper into itself and into its value system and into its way of thinking. And the devil... The world will say the devil doesn't even exist. And the devil's quite happy with that. <laughs> He's quite happy going incognito. He's quite happy thinking that with, when people think he doesn't exist because then he can do his best work. The devil does his best work when you're not aware that he's doing his best work. When, when I say best work, I mean, in his opinion, best work. <laughs> For his purposes, you know. He doesn't do any good work, really. <laughs> you know, objectively speaking. But... He's most effective when you don't know that he's working on you. He's most effective when you're unaware of the fact that you're working. In fact, he's most effective when he puts thoughts and desires and all kinds of things into your heart and you think those are your thoughts and desires. And very often we do. And if you don't think he exists, then you'll think that whatever he puts into your heart comes from you. And that is what you want. And notice that all three of those, in some way, try to usurp something that belongs only to God. And the text also gives us ways of resisting that. So, so let me just try and mention those. So the first one, <clears throat> the desires or the passions, the hedonistic pleasures and desires in our hearts. It, it says those those. Those desires battle within us. But it's not only those desires, those evil, sinful desires that battle inside of us. But if you're a Christian, then there's also new desires that come through the Holy Spirit that battle with those desires. And there's a battle inside of you 
to capture your heart, to capture your imagination, to capture your desires. And implicitly, James mentions prayer as a powerful weapon to fight that battle. And he says, on the one hand, we should, we should ask God. We don't have because we don't ask. And we should ask God. But then he goes further and he says, not only that we should ask God for what we want, but we should ask God to change what we want so that we want what God wants. Because he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. In other words, you ask in line with your hedonistic pleasures instead of in line with God's will and God's art for you. And, and here's the thing. So often, and, and um, I think Louis mentioned this as well, so often we trust God to give us what we want, but we don't trust God to tell us what we should want. Who are we trusting then, Really? We're trusting ourselves. In other words, it's, it's easy to trust God's almighty power to provide in our needs, but can we also trust God's wisdom to show us what are our true needs? And, and, and that is part of prayer. Prayer doesn't only receive what we need from God. Prayer <clears throat> changes us. Prayer changes our hearts so that we want what God wants for us. And, and, and that's part of why prayer is so, so powerful. Um, you know, recently this, in this month we, we, we had a Daniel fast. And, and what we did was we fasted from something, you know, maybe meat or, you know, social media or whatever you, you fasted from. And while we were fasting, we also prayed for those three weeks, those 21 days, you know, based on Daniel chapter 9 and, and how he fasted. And the reason for that is because we need to we need disciplines of regularly saying no to certain things and that's what fasting is all about it's saying no to those hedonistic pleasures and those desires and the things of the world and prayer is saying yes to god andrew murray said prayer is grabbing hold of heaven and 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 fasting is letting go of earth in other words what we're practicing are disciplines of detachment and disciplines of attachment. And, and many of the spiritual disciplines are like that. They're either disciplines of detachment where you're letting go, actively, intentionally letting go of things that are holding you back. Practicing to let go of things because it doesn't come easily. When we want something, we want it. And it's difficult for us to let go of it. That's why later on it talks about mourning and weeping and grieving you know, because it's, it's a process that is difficult for us to get detached from things and to let go of things. We struggle with it. But that's what repentance is all about. That's what fasting helps us to practice. It's a, it's a discipline of detachment, of letting go of things, of actually pushing things away, saying, I don't want that. I want to let go of it. And then prayer is a discipline of attachment, of grabbing hold of God and saying, God, I need you. I want you to come and meet the desires that I'm tempted to meet in the world. I want you to come and meet in a pure and holy way the desires that I'm tempted to meet through sin. Because here is the thing, the irony of it. If you meet those desires, because usually those, those hedonistic desires 
are a sinful, I almost want to say, um, flip side of the coin of a good desire. And the problem is not necessarily the desire per se, but the way we try and meet it. Let me explain what I, what I mean by that. God, C.S. Lewis says, God doesn't find our desires too strong. He actually finds them too weak. For instance, you know, a young man who is, you know, caught in pornography and he's viewing pornography on the, on the internet and, and, and looking at that. What, what is the base desire? What, what is the, the deepest desire for that, the need there? It's a need for beauty. Now, obviously, that has been with pornography. When you try and meet it with pornography, it's been badly perverted. But, but also, I mean, it's, it's more complex with pornography because there's also the, the desire for intimacy. Now, now, pornography takes all of that and twists it and perverts it into something very ugly and very nasty. Where it is, at the heart of it, when you look at the, the intimacy between a husband and wife, and, and, and even the, excuse me for being so blunt, the, the desire and the nakedness and all that stuff that goes along with it. There's nothing wrong with that per se. It's actually good. God created that. Some of you are like, what? God created sex? Yes, actually God created sex. The devil didn't invent sex. It's God's idea. Okay? So, so the, 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 the underlying desire for intimacy, for beauty, those are stuff that God created. Those are good. The devil has taken it and perverted it into something that it shouldn't be. Something that's nasty. But the thing is, the devil's perverted desire, when you try and meet it, when that young man tries to meet it through pornography, it'll never fully satisfy. That's why, if you, if you follow, I heard a very scary interview with um, um, Bundy, Ted Bundy, that the serial killer. And, and he said how his serial killings, it started off with soft porn, which he found, you know, magazines that he found in a dustbin. And he started looking at the soft porn. And then he went over to harder porn and eventually to violent pornography. And eventually the, the violent pornography, just looking at it wasn't enough and he wanted to enact it. And he says, and he obviously spent quite a lot of time in, in, on death row, you know, with... with um, prisoners, the most violent and, and you know, destructive prisoners awaiting um, a death sentence. And he says there's not a single one of them that wasn't deeply into pornography. And, and it's designed to, because it never fully satisfies you, so you want something worse and something worse and something's worse. You know, it, it, it's like drugs are like that also. You start with, with a, you know, smoking a bit of pot and then eventually you, you, want, to, you want something more. You know, the, the, the high that the, the, that the marijuana gives you is not enough and, and you want something more and you, you, you start graduating to, to, you know, all kinds of other drugs, you know, like eventually cocaine and heroin and, and the really terrible stuff, the destructive, deadly stuff. So <clears throat> the irony is when you try and have your the world and sin meet your needs, it will never satisfy you. But when you allow God to meet the true need, the base level need for beauty, for intimacy, all that kind of stuff, it will actually satisfy you. I love what John Piper says. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our, God's glory and our satisfaction are not mutually exclusive. God wants us to enjoy him. So this old stereotypical idea of Christians are people who don't enjoy anything. 
That's not a biblical idea at all. Christians, real Christians, are people who really enjoy stuff a lot. You know, if God has given you a husband or a wife, then you receive them as a blessing from God and you enjoy them. If God has, has um, given you a job to do, then, you, then you, you, you receive it as a blessing from God and you enjoy it and you enjoy the creativity and the challenge of it and, and the, the, the opportunity to do good to others through it. Etc. Etc. I mean, when you when you look around at nature, Christians should enjoy nature the most. We should look at it and say, God created this, and He created it beautiful for us and for a reason, so that we can look at it and marvel it and say, Wow! If what God created, and which imperfectly represents Him, is so beautiful and so touching to us, just imagine how beautiful is the one who actually created it. So God wants us to to let go of the things of the world, the the, the sinful fallen things of the world, and grab hold of him. And through him, by enjoying him, enjoy the things of the world in the right way, the things of um, that are not sinful. But then he goes on and he he says something interesting. He starts in in verse 4. He's talking about friendship with the world and enmity to God. But he starts off and he says, you adulterous people. (laughs) I mean... That sounds like he's mixing his metaphors. It sounds like he's saying, uh, he's talking about, you know, adulterous people. In other words, you're expecting sort of a husband-wife metaphor here. But then he talks about friendship. But the reason he does that is adultery and adulterers, and actually it's, it's there in, in the feminine, even though it's talking to men and women. Adulterers are people who break covenant, no matter what the covenant is. So in the, in, in the Bible... In the biblical times, if you think about David and Jonathan, you know, them making covenant and cutting, you know, their hands and mixing blood and so on. Friendship was a covenant, just like marriage is a covenant, just like our relationship with God is a covenant. In other words, what he's saying here is that at the heart of, of, of this problem is the fact that we don't consistently keep covenant. Now listen to this, because this is crucial. This is important. Obviously, as a pastor, I, I marry a lot of people, um, you know, and, and, and I see the, the, the bride walking down the aisle, and I see the groom, you know, getting all teary-eyed and being really thankful that he doesn't have to wear mascara and makeup and stuff, and <laughs> being so touched by his beautiful bride coming to him. And, and then I do the, the, the vows with them. And part of the vows, and I like to emphasize this whenever I do a, a wedding, is they say, and forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you until death do us part. In other words, covenant is, is exclusive. It's, it's, it's not just, I'm going to live with you. It's, it's not just, I'm saying yes to you. It's not just saying, I do to you. It's also, I'm saying, I don't to every other woman or every other man. When I say I do to you, I'm, also, I'm saying one I do, but I'm saying millions and millions of I don'ts. I'm saying one yes, but I'm saying millions of no's. In other words, the key to saying no well is to say yes well. Every yes that you say also carries with it, on the flip side of a coin, an implicit no. And the reason we often struggle to say no well is because we haven't said yes well enough, or we haven't regularly enough revisited our yes. And that's called covenant renewal, because covenant is saying yes 
to another party, to a covenant party. It's a covenant, yes. It's a lifelong, yes. It's a till death to us part, yes. It's a forsaking all others, yes. And just like those two spouses, when they on their wedding day, you know, so in love with one another, look into each other's eyes and say, and forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you until death do us part. So, when we come to God, when we commit our lives to Him, when we get born again, we, as it were, stand before the altar of eternity and we say, God, forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you until death do us part. I'm saying, I said yes to you, and in that yes, I said no to everyone else. I said no to the world. I said no to sin. I said no to anything that would want to drag my allegiance away from you, tempt my allegiance away from you. And we as human beings, we forget. That's why there's such a thing as wedding anniversaries and where you, you know, remind yourself of your covenant promises that you made on your wedding day because we forget. We forget the yes that we said. We all do. And just like we have to revisit it in marriage, we have to revisit it with God. And I know that as you're sitting there, you are realizing, yes, that's me. My no is sometimes not strong enough and insistent enough because I'm forgetting my yes and I need to revisit that yes. I need to stand before the altar again and say yes to God again and say, God, I'm saying, forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you until death was part. <clears throat> And then uh, where the devil, it says, so, so where, where our flesh wants what we desire instead of what God's desire, and the world wants us to have allegiance with it instead of allegiance with God, the devil wants us to submit to him instead of to God. And that's why it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And notice he doesn't say, resist the devil, and then submit to God. It first says submit to God and then resist the devil. In other words, you can't defeat the devil by acting like him. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. You can't overcome the devil by acting like him. What does, the de- does the devil submit to God? Absolutely not. The devil does exactly the opposite of submitting to God. He rebels against God. And he wants to drag us into his rebellion. And his resistance against God. And we think we can resist him while acting like him. And that's wishful thinking. You can't resist the devil when you're acting like him. So first we need to submit to God and then we'll be able to resist the devil and he, so that he will flee from us. Um, I'm running out of time. So I, I just want to sort of, you know, sort of tie this up. The crux of what we're supposed to do, and here in, in verse 6, let me just read that uh, again. It says, but he, that's God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Only those who are humble can actually overcome temptation. But the key there is, it talks about grace twice there. God gives more grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The key there is God's grace. You see, let me put it this way, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, in a sense, share the gospel with you because I just want to read you this, this 
in, in Titus 2, you don't have to read it in your, in your Bible, just listen to it. It says, Titus 2 verse 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. We think that the grace of God in the gospel saves us from the penalty of sin. We sometimes forget that the grace of God in the gospel saves us from the power of sin by training us to say no to ungodliness. In other words, the point I'm trying to make, and that's why James twice there mentions grace. Without grace, you will never learn to say no to the world by saying yes to God. Because, I mean, it it says there, you know, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble and we think, oh, I must be more humble. I must be more humble, you know. I must try harder to be more humble. I need God's grace. I know I need God's grace. And, and the only way I can get God's grace is if I'm more humble. No. Look carefully what it says. It says, therefore, he gives more grace. You cannot give more grace unless you've first given grace. If God's grace to the humble is more grace, what is the grace that precedes the more grace? It's the grace that enables us to be humble. In other words, here's the thing. God's grace creates what it commands. God demands exclusive devotion from us. He he demands humility from us. So many things that he demands in there. And if we look at that, we'll be overwhelmed. We say, I can't can't do that. Not consistently. But that's why it says he gives more grace. As you obey him, as you humble yourself, as you respond to his grace, yes, you'll receive more grace. But that's more grace. It's his grace in the beginning that enables you to humble yourself, that enables you to repent, that enables you to mourn for your sins. That enables you to say yes, a covenant yes to God, so that you can keep on saying a covenant no to the things of the world, to the things of the flesh, to the enticements of the devil. And that's good, that's the good news, that's the gospel. The gospel doesn't only save us from the penalty of sin, it saves us from the power of sin. It is what helps us to resist temptation. I love that portion where it says, and if you can just maybe bring it up on the screen again, verse um, 5, where it says um, that the Spirit He caused to dwell in us longs or yearns jealously. What is jealousy? Jealousy is when you are not willing to share that which covenantally belongs to you with others. I'm not supposed to share my wife. Covenantally, she belongs to me. I'm not supposed to share her. I should be jealous of her. If if I'm not jealous of her, in the sense of covenantally, she belongs to me. Obviously, there's a sense, a greater sense in which God can be jealous. And the Bible says that in, in the Old Testament. God is a jealous God. In other words, he won't share us. And if he were not jealous, he would not love us. Now, we think of jealous in a, in, a, in a nasty human sense, right? We think of it as, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever being jealous um, and, uh, in, in a nasty way. But if something 
doesn't belong to you and you're jealous for it, then, then that jealousy is bad. But if something really does belong to you, then if you're not jealous for it, if someone really does covenantally belong to you and you're not jealous for them, then you don't really love them. Now think about this. The Spirit whom God caused to dwell inside of us, the Holy Spirit, jealously yearns and longs for us. In other words, the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, if you're born of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, that Holy Spirit of God jealously yearns for you, longs for you, longs to have you as His own. He doesn't want to share you with the world. He doesn't want to share you with the devil. He doesn't want to share you with anyone. You should, you're supposed to belong to Him. That is how much He wants you. That ought to make you feel wanted. <laughs> that ought to make you feel loved. That ought to make you feel the God of the universe, the greatest being in the universe, loves me so much that He doesn't want to share me in the wrong way with anyone else. Yes, he'll give me as a husband to Rochelle and Rochelle as a wife to me. So it's not that he doesn't want to share me at all, but, it, but he'll share me in the right way. But he won't, there's a place in that, that, that our ultimate devotion, any other devotion only finds its place when my ultimate devotion is towards God. If I'd said that ultimate, if I've said that ultimate yes to God, then I can say the smaller yeses to, the, to whomever God gives me and to whomever you know, God wants me to give myself. So, the crux of what I want to share with you is you need to be able to say a very strong yes in order to say many regular, consistent, strong no's. If you want to say no to the things of the flesh, those hedonistic pleasures, if you want to say no to the things of the world, if you want to say no to the devil trying to dominate you and get you to submit to him, if you want to do that consistently, if you want to say all of those no's consistently, you have to regularly revisit that covenant yes that you said to God. You have to regularly remind yourself that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you jealously yearns for you, wants you for himself. And you've got to regularly surrender more and more of your life, more and more parts of your heart. It says, cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, double-minded is committed, trying to commit to two different things. David prays in the Psalms, unite my heart that I might fear your name, that I might be fully devoted to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. So purifying your heart on the inside, cleansing your hands on the outside. You can only do that to the extent that you regularly revisit that yes, that covenant yes that you said to God. So let's stand, and I want, I want us all to stand. I, want us, I, f- I really think we all need to respond to this. I don't think this is a, something, and if I can ask any of them, if you can just play that song again, Be the Center. Because um, that's what we're talking about. We're saying, Jesus, I want you to be the center. And, and, and you know your life will not make sense unless Jesus is the center of your life. For so long, <clears throat> both a... Uh, much of the religious crowd and, and much of the scientific crowd in the world for many years in the dark ages and before thought that the earth was the center of the universe. And, and the, the, the movement of the planets and the stars and stuff just didn't make sense because they'd go forward, then they'd stop, then they'd go backwards, and then they'd do all kinds of movements that 
you know, didn't look like they were orbiting the earth, like, like the scientists and stuff at that stage thought they were. And then they discovered, no, the earth is not the center of the, the solar system. The sun is. And the earth is not the center of the universe. There's a, there's a different center. And so often we live as though we, like the earth, are the center of our solar system. And nothing in our life makes sense. It's confusing. It, the, the world and, and, and life does things it's not supposed to do. And, and as soon as they moved, this made the sun the center of the universe and the, and the point of reference, all of a sudden they realized, okay, but everything orbits the sun. All of a sudden, the, 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 you know, it all makes sense. It all fits into place. And, and if we make Jesus the center, it, you know, if we, if we make that shift from being self-centered to being God-centered, then all of a sudden things will fall into place in our lives. Our lives will start making sense. Our lives will start orbiting in the right way. Because God has his rightful place and we have our place in orbit around him. I just want you to imagine standing before God, before the cosmic altar. And God as our cosmic bridegroom, standing before him, standing with him, looking into his eyes. Jesus the one who loved us so much that he was willing to die for us, to save us. Our hero. The most beautiful person that ever walked the earth. Just close your eyes. Just imagine standing with him. And I want you to revisit those wedding-like, marriage-like covenant vows that you made to him when you surrendered your life to him. Whether you, you're joining us on YouTube or whether you're here live. I just want you to Recommitment, recommit yourself to him. Do a, 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 a covenant renewal ceremony with him. Just take a, two or three minutes and just renew your vows. Just renew that covenant yes. And ask him to help you out of that, that renewed covenant yes to consistently say no to what you need to say no to. Just in your own words, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. Yes, Lord Jesus, we just come to you, Lord, as our glorious and faithful bridegroom. We just come to you, Lord, as our Lord and our Savior, our best friend, our King. We just come to you and we surrender everything to you. We just say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes to you. Lord, and we pray, though, Lord, that it'll be a yes that'll echo in our hearts for all of eternity, Lord. We pray, Lord, that it'll be a, a yes, Lord, that it gets repeated daily, Lord, as we worship you, as we pray to you, Lord, as we seek you, Lord, that that yes will be repeated and reinforced over and over again, Lord, and that out of that yes will flow all the no's that we need to say on a daily basis. Lord, I just pray your blessing over your saints, over your people in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord God, that they will just be so aware of your presence, Holy Spirit, as you inside of us. Just remind us, I want you. I long for you. I love you. I'm, I've taken you as mine. 
giving yourself to me because you are mine and I'm yours forever. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.